Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. For today's podcast, we're joined by James Rogers, who is reader in international journalism at City, University of London, and he's the author of a new book, reviewed very favourably in History Today, which is Assignment Moscow, Reporting on Russia from Lenin to Putin, published by I.B. Taurus. James, welcome. Very nice to be here, Paul. Thank you. One of the most interesting things about the book, I thought, is this, is the way that you start very early with really the arrival, the rise of Lenin there. And I wonder if there is a shift in journalism or how Western journalism, because we're talking here about Western correspondence in the Soviet Union and then later uh, in Russia, um, whether there was a marked sea change in the way that Western correspondents looked at the Soviet Union in contrasting with the way they'd looked at Tsarist Russia, for example? I think one of the most interesting things I came across in the research for this, Paul, and it's something I've tried to bring out in the book, is the very, very sharp divisions of opinion which existed amongst the correspondents. Those are also mirrored uh, by political and proprietorial influences at home. To, to give you an example, not surprisingly, well, in some senses it is surprising, but those titles which, for example, one would imagine nowadays would be strongly opposed to the Bolshevik Revolution and see very little good in it, um, particularly the Daily Mail and the Times, which also that in that era was owned by Lord Northcliffe, the Daily Telegraph too. There's a very interesting theme which comes through in their coverage right after the uh, right through that autumn from October 1917 onwards there is this conviction and this desire to to send the message that this regime simply cannot last there's lots of headlines suggesting Lenin's only got weeks to go and this won't work and that won't work and it's interesting though those correspondents who were more on the left um, and I'm thinking here particularly of Morgan Phillips Price of the Manchester Guardian as it then was they give excellent explanations. Now, of course, Phillips Price himself had his own views on, on the situation, and he was very much politically on the left, as I say, but they do give very clear explanations. I would add Arthur Ransom to that, too. And so there's a sense in which um, they are really trying to explain what is going on, but I think also there is perhaps a little element of a slight bit of wishful thinking and, and the way that things are going. Ransom, for example, writes you know, in glowing terms about his experience of having seen Lenin give a speech, for example. And I think there is this division there. Um, Robert Wilton, who was the correspondent for the Times then, uh, who, who so incurred um, the wrath of the Bolsheviks actually that once he he left, um, 
uh, around 1920 uh, and was unable to return subsequently. And the Times did not actually have a correspondent in the Soviet Union until the 1940s. They were, they were kept at arm's length. They had to report many of the big developments uh, from Riga in Latvia. Um, so there was this very sharp division, um, not just among the newspapers, but among the correspondents working for them. And how did the Soviets approach them? How were they treated by the by the Soviets? I mean, it's interesting you say that they're not there till the 1940s in some cases. Now, how were they treated by them? I mean, I, I imagine there was a great deal of suspicion if there was this wishful thinking uh, that it would disappear suddenly. There was a huge amount of suspicion. Um, a number of correspondents then in that time were suspected of being spies. Some of them quite rightly suspected of being spies. There's a very interesting story of Marguerite Harrison, for example, um, a journalist who was who, who sought to go there in the 1920s, an American journalist. Her gender prevented her being chosen as a foreign correspondent then. Uh, so she was offered an opportunity to spy instead by American military intelligence and readily accepted it. And, and tells in her memoir this astonishing account of how she's able to cross the, the Polish-Russian border and, and proceed apparently unimpeded to Moscow. Only later does she realize that um, the Soviet agent in New York had tipped off his masters in Moscow about who exactly she was. So they allowed her to come in because they wanted to keep an eye on her. Um, but I, I think, you know, in the, there was a great deal of suspicion um, and for a long time in, in the early years of Soviet power, correspondents were really not able uh, to enter. But it's a measure of um, the importance that the Soviets set by this, that when there was a famine in the early 1920s and the Soviets were looking for outside help, they actually sent Maxim Litvinov, the, the Commissar for Foreign Affairs, the equivalent of the Foreign Minister, to negotiate with them. Uh, in, in Latvia on the border to see if, if they were going to be allowed in. And one particular character, Floyd Gibbon, who was a, who's, um, his photograph is in the book, he'd lost an eye in the First World War and was utterly fearless. That didn't seem to have dampened his enthusiasm for reporting. Um, said that uh, he intended to fly in and that if Litvinov would not uh, grant him a visa, he would fly in and he would like to see if the Soviet authorities would dare to stop his aircraft. And apparently he did have an aircraft at his disposal. He didn't need to call on that in the end. But as I say, I think despite this suspicion, despite this sort of wariness of whether their story was being told in a way which they wanted, uh, because after all, it was not that long since the British government had, had landed troops in northern Russia in an attempt to intervene and reverse um, the Bolsheviks' grip on power. Um, but it's a measure of this, the store they set by this and of telling their stories to the world that they actually sent such a senior figure to negotiate with the correspondents there. And is there, do you get a sense of a time uh, when the West, through its correspondence, realises that this regime, this entity, the Soviet Union, is here to stay? I think that probably develops... Um, during the 1920s and I think one of the big landmarks in that is probably um, very closely linked with the career of one of the most controversial Moscow correspondents there ever was right throughout the last century and that's Walter Duranty of the New York Times. Controversial because as the recent film and Mr Jones has depicted he really refused to um, report uh, the famine in Ukraine in the 1930s um, was fulsome in his praise of Stalin. One can only conclude that Duranty was very much impressed by this show of strength that Stalin, this, this man of steel, as his Russian uh, name would have it, was, was able to show in, in consolidating Soviet power in the early years of that time. And it becomes clear, I think, with hindsight that one of uh, Duranty's priorities um, 
was to get his to 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 cement his reputation as an international fixer because at the end of this period what does Durante do after having you know found all these sort of curious um euphemisms to not to use the word famine having declined to seek to go himself to Ukraine to see what was happening there at the end of this he ends up accompanying Litvinov to the United States when the United States is preparing to recognize the Soviet Union and Durante is fated when he arrives in the United States as this great international fixer having you know brought these uh, and he, I think he really was so reluctant I think there are two things there he had an admiration for Stalin and I think he was also reluctant to jeopardize what he hoped would be his subsequent legacy as not just a correspondent. Um, I mean, and to give Durante his credit, he, he was in many ways an excellent correspondent. He just had this massive blind spot, but not just a correspondent, but also a great influence in international affairs. And was that, I mean, plainly we'd say now, looking back that someone like Durante is complicit in this image that's there of Starling being a kind of progressive force, or the Soviet Union being a progressive force. How did Western correspondence unearth the realities of that regime, if in fact they did? Uh, and I'm thinking of particularly during the, the, the show trials, the Moscow trials, of course, in the mid-1930s. How, how good were Western correspondents in revealing what really was happening? I think to an extent they do deserve quite a lot of credit for that. Um, I, when you read the reporting of the time, there's absolutely no illusion uh, as to the nature of those trials which are going on. There were some um, useful idiots, as Lenin is supposed to have said, uh, and Durante, you know, who had not was no longer in, based in Moscow by then, but because of his authority on the subject, was still writing on it from a distance. He returned for some of the show trials. He um, professed the belief well in advance that they would that all the accused would be found guilty. Um, but he, he, he did it much more in terms of defending the system. But you see a great deal much more nuanced reporting in other places. Uh, you see uh, an understanding that this is a spectacle that is being presented, that it is just as much show as trial. There is reference to, to the microphone, there's reference to things being recorded and filmed, because of course, you know, uh, the Soviet regime was extremely keen to use the new technology to the greatest of its potential to, to show what was going on there. But I think there's one sort of particularly telling thing, and this is something that Fitzroy McLean cites in, in his memoir, uh, when um, A.T. Cholleton, who was the, um, the veteran correspondent of the, uh, the Daily Telegraph, is asked by somebody, you know, and, and there are various versions of the stories that appear in different memoirs, uh, and possibly Cholleton repeated it because it was, it was a very good way of, of summarising, but he's asked if he believes what's going on. He says, yes, oh, I believe everything, everything except the facts. In other words, that every, he believed absolutely everything except what he saw before him and what was being presented to the court. So I think there's a very clear understanding of what is going on. There is a clear understanding that by, this is a device that Stalin is using to wipe out the generation of those Bolsheviks who had, um, who had helped to see the Soviets come to power and consolidate power for himself. So I think there's very clear-eyed analysis of what is going on. But what a remarkable thing, Paul. You know, we talk today about political obituaries. And of course, in the newspapers in those days, because the executions of those who were found guilty were carried out so very quickly, you could see at the end of articles, you know, and you can read the obituary of this so-and-so on page such and such, or uh, or at the end of the uh, the end of the um 
at the end of the obituary, you can say, and you can read a report of the executions on the front page. It's just, you know, it's such a sort of sudden and brutal end, and it's really brought home to us. There's one very interesting thing as well I discovered in one of those newspapers from that era, uh, probably which didn't please either the Times Advertising Department or the Soviet tourist agencies, that one of um, the editions which carried some particularly gruesome details of the show trials, also had an advertisement for anybody who might want to go to take a river cruise in the Soviet Union. And this relationship uh, between Western correspondence and the Soviet Union must have become particularly complicated. Um, for one, during the Nazi-Soviet pact, but then with the vault face, this great about turn, when the Soviet Union suddenly becomes this ally, that must have presented Western correspondence with real challenges, both those two episodes. It did. I mean, the, 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 um, the Nazi-Soviet pact at that time, there really were very few correspondents in Moscow. It was after the show trials. It was a very difficult time to get access. But of course, you're absolutely right to highlight that. That vault fast also coincided um, with an improvement in access. Um, and so we see in the autumn of 1941, and that small number of Western correspondents are allowed to go to Moscow, uh, but they're kept very closely there, in fact, with, with a couple of exceptions. They are kept in Moscow. Their access to information is very limited. There's an interesting point here about um, the changing world of international media and communication, because by that time, of course, radio was the uh, predominant medium uh, for, for news and propaganda. And there's a lot of discussion, um, particularly in the memoir of Charlotte Haldane, who was one of the first women to report from British women to report from the Soviet Union, who talks of the difficulties of getting hold of a radio set because of these were things which were not readily available in the Soviet Union, but she understands it's absolutely indispensable for her um, to do her job. So, and the, the, the correspondence were largely kept in, in Moscow for that autumn. There is one exception when they were taken after the Soviets had been able to reverse some of the Nazis' military gains west of Moscow. The correspondents were taken in a small group to the town of Yasma uh, and, and to... Uh, to Haldane's great excitement, they actually find themselves caught in an air raid. She writes about how she's been bitterly disappointed to be so far away from the danger when she was stuck in Moscow. Um, but they um, yeah, and they have this remarkable experience where um, the Soviets have succeeded in shooting down um, one of the planes which has been involved in the air raid, and they invite the correspondents to witness the uh, the, the German air crew and being interrogated. Now, Haldane um, had been in London the year before and had also worked um, in an air raid shelter in St Pancras in central London and realises that you know, she talks about the, the corpses that she's seen, the, 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 the dead civilians as a result of German bombing raids and realises that the young man who's a navigator that they're seeing being interrogated here um, may well have been, uh, was uh, a member of those air crews. And I think this was something that Western correspondents really don't have these days. It's, it's a particular moment in journalistic history in the sense that well, of course, lots of Western correspondents report on conflict, but there's no British or American correspondent who's had that experience of going to see another front in a war, while at the same time, you know, in the case of the British correspondents, their own national capital was being bombed almost daily. And then we face another change here because the Second World War ends and the Cold War begins and we have a very different relationship again which provides 
new challenges there. And so there's this very strange period from the end of the Second World War, beginning of the Cold War, through to the death of Stalin and then the crush of Thor. What happens there? I mean, what's what's the kind of narrative there? What are the shifts and changes that occur during that, which seems a particularly dramatic year? And again, it's one of these vault faces in the relationship with the West that we have. It's a very interesting development. I and mean, if you look at reporting from the late 1940s, um, I'm thinking particularly of Harrison Salisbury from the New York Times. It's one of the first times I came across the phrase Cold War in his reporting, and it's in inverted commas. It was so new that this was a new phrase that people were only just starting uh, to use. And then, of course, in 1953, Stalin dies. And there is this, this Khrushchev thaw. There's the astonishing story of how Khrushchev's secret speech at which he denounced uh, Stalin to the party congress, how that reaches um, the West uh, via John Retty, uh, who was a correspondent there for Reuters at the time who tried uh, years later to establish, you know, how he'd been led towards this story and he was never finally able to untangle it. But it looked as if, you know, the Soviets were really wanted this to get out, but it was very, you know, it was, it was kept secret officially, but they wanted to make sure that it, it leaked out to the West. Um, Retty tells the story of having to try to go on holiday because it wasn't felt safe to try to file it from the Soviet Union. Um, and so he, he he tries to file it from Sweden, in fact, and then he puts on a fake voice so that the copy takers at Reuters won't know who he is. He's so keen to to protect his anonymity, but they they see through this this guy's almost this this ruse almost immediately. But it's um, Khrushchev. So Khrushchev tries to have this sort of more. There's a, there's a thaw, as it's called, at home, and it coincides with you know, some remarkable access, in some sense, for foreign correspondents given that it's the beginning of the Cold War. Khrushchev, for example, was in the habit of turning up at diplomatic cocktail parties to chat. Uh, he would attend the national days, you know, in the case of the United States, the 4th of July, uh, in the case of, uh, of Britain, the Queen's birthday, when, you know, embassies abroad would normally hold a reception for, for guests uh, to celebrate the national day. Um, and and Robert Elphick, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, oldest correspondent I was able to interview who sadly died has died since but he was a correspondent there for Reuters in the 1950s and remembered Khrushchev just people would go make sure correspondents would make sure they went to these diplomatic receptions because Khrushchev would be bound to sort of wander over uh, and chat to the correspondents very very hard to imagine of course with uh, President Putin now uh, but of course that was you know Khrushchev is not remembered for sort of affable chats over drinks but so much as for his menaces to the west at the United Nations so that was just, you know, a moment of a thaw, of a thaw. And then, of course, I think, you know, you go into the 1960s and 1970s and it becomes an extremely, extremely difficult place to operate. Very limited access. Correspondents obliged to live uh, in special blocks of flats, which are guarded by the militia, as the Russian police were then called, and also, of course, very closely monitored by the KGB. And very little uh, are not legally permitted to travel outside, you know, more than I think it was 40 kilometers from the center of Moscow without specific permission. So very, very difficult um, circumstances into which to operate. So it's been very difficult then during that period in particular um, for Western correspondents to deal with that. They have access to the center in Moscow, most obviously, however limited that may be. But when one looks at the size of the Soviet Union, you think of the Caucasus, you think of the, all the other areas, Siberia, wherever, um, and as well as 
the newfound empire in the West, so that in Eastern Europe, in, in Hungary, in Poland, Czechoslovakia, wherever, um, it must be a very, very limited perspective that the Western correspondent is dealing with at that point. And was there much of a relationship between specialists in the Soviet Union and those correspondents who were in places like Budapest or Prague or, or, or relationships between Russian journalists themselves in the regions? Whether it was there any kind of dynamic there? There was a little bit of it. I mean, one area in which you find sort of disagreements, actually, um, which is not something I looked at in, in a huge amount of detail, but, but, but it was, you did, because there were people who uh, in the West, often uh, Soviet emigrants, who were experts who were writing analysis, uh, often for, the, for newspapers, uh, which would accompany the correspondent reports. But it was very, very difficult. They had very, very little um, access to things. They had very little uh, connection, in a sense, with, with their counterparts in the wider Soviet bloc. And one thing which emerges from correspondent memoirs uh, from that time and from the accounts of people I was able to interview, including um, Jonathan Steele of The Guardian, one of the main ways that people got a sense of the real Russia, uh, you know, think about the, the size of the country or the size of the Soviet Union, was overnight train journeys. It was a very, very common way of talking. And of course, one has to treat this with a, a degree of suspicion. Was that random person who happened to be in the next seat to you or the next sleeping compartment to you really as random as they seemed? Um, I mean, the, the, the French writer André Gide went to, uh, went to Moscow in the 1930s. He became bitter and disillusioned afterwards, but was, was struck by you know, these very friendly and, and you know, uh, you know French and English speaking young people who happened to be in the next train compartment to him. It's very hard to imagine that was just a coincidence. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, people did get, you know, there's something about these Russian overnight train journeys. And I took a lot myself um, when I was living and working there because it's a very good way of getting around and an excellent way really of appreciating the size of the country as well when it takes you so long to travel by land. So that was one way which they did do this. They would have, you know, they would find themselves chatting to people on trains and get a sense of the country in that way. But it was very, very difficult. And a lot of the, um, the stories which they concentrated on and a lot of their major sources of influence uh, were dissidents, in fact, you know, who were trying to get stories out to the West, um, sometimes at great risk to themselves. And some of them, it, it seems, possibly taking a calculated risk that if they made enough noise and got reported in the Western press, they might actually be allowed to leave, to be got rid of, if that's, if that's what they wanted, they might be allowed to leave the country. But not, you know, not in any sense sort of golden era of reporting because of the great difficulty of doing anything. And you are part of the history about which you write. So can you tell us something about your um, time as a journalist, as a correspondent um, in the Soviet Union and in Russia? Yes, I first went there in, in 1991. So next year, it'll be 30 years since my first assignment um, there. I went to uh, Moscow in the summer of 1991, the summer that turned out to be the last summer of the Soviet Union. Uh, and the story I went to cover um, as a young producer for um, Reuters Television, uh, the, the news agency, was the election of Boris Yeltsin as president of Russia. Uh, and I remember, um, I don't think, obviously it was very exciting for me, uh, a young journalist on, on their first foreign assignment, but I also remember the sense personally of seeing um, you know, feeling really feeling that the world was changing in a way that I don't think I, I have had since. And the excitement 
that you sensed um, on the streets of Moscow then when Yeltsin supporters were having demonstrations in the lead up to voting day. Um, really euphoria, I don't think, I think is the only word to describe it. And I'm always reminded of that, of Wordsworth's line about the um, French Revolution. Bliss was it in that dawn to be alive, but to be young was very heaven. Just to be carried away on this great uh, enthusiasm of that. But I think, and having started off from that, I spent long periods uh, in Russia in the 1990s, and I think you got a sense and you began to understand the disillusion. Um, it was only two years later, of course, uh, and this is an episode which is not recalled so often, but in, in, the, in October of 1993, Yeltsin having had a lengthy disagreement um, with the parliament, which he'd inherited from the Soviet era, and I, unable to pass his laws, um, armed conflict broke out, broke out in the centre of Moscow. It was really, it was a very modern kind of war, really. And I, I think that the, the, and I do clearly remember, it was a lesson, it's something I tell my students now, you know, when you're trying to judge the, in, in, the, in any sort of revolutionary or, or civil unrest situation, how very quickly things can change. Because within a little over 24 hours, what had been a demonstration um, which had involved eventually some people throwing missiles at the police within 24 hours was a shooting war within the centre of Moscow. Uh, and that next afternoon, um, the parliament's forces or the forces supporting the parliament tried and failed to take control of the central television station in Moscow. Uh, and a number of people were killed there. And the next day, Yeltsin sent tanks against the parliament building. To, to crush their opposition. That was that was really, and it was it was something, it was a very sort of, I think a, a very, almost a 21st century experience of, of, of urban warfare, of civil unrest and of, and of covering those things because nothing had been seen like it in the streets of Moscow since the revolution. Um, and it was, it went from a demonstration to a shooting war within 24 hours. And, and I think, and, uh, and Helen Womack, who was worked in Moscow for many years uh, as for the Independent and others, made this point when I interviewed her for the book. She said, I don't think we really understood at the time how strong the opposition was and how what the shock was amongst the Russian population that Yeltsin had used tanks in this way and had fired on politicians. And I think that really was a beginning introduction of violence into Russian politics, which in a sense uh, was, was going to continue. We think then of, of the war in Chechnya. Um, that was a, it, it, the, the two wars really from 94 to 96 and then from 99 to 2000. Hugely important moment and incredibly difficult to cover and extre extremely dangerous as well. Um, and uh, we think, think of thinking of those times in particular, it was for me a harsh lesson into the limits of what journalistic influence could be because we reported at great length the extensive civilian casualties in that conflict um, uh, and in the hope that there would be you know that the, the west would take some sort of measures and but of course you know if you look at the bigger geopolitical picture then this is just a few years after the end of, of half a century or so of cold war the west was not going to jeopardize um, its relations uh, with Moscow. And it was, it was a real lesson for me in when journalism can and can't influence things. And I concluded after that, that journalism can only really influence things where there is pre-existing political will. In other words, all this, the terrible things which are happening in Chechnya then, probably 100,000 civilians died in that conflict. No one's ever really fully estimated it. Certainly lots of people fled. 
but it was there was nothing really that the West could or would do thinking about their bigger priorities of building good relations with 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 Yeltsin's Russia. But it was something I think you know a lot of people remembered Yeltsin as this this figure who'd helped to end communism. But I think for those of us who lived through that era, there was also this extremely violent side to Russian politics that I think, as I say, it was a real scar on that era of Russian history. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that 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 influence there. Um, people like Svetlana Alexeyevich have, have written very eloquently about um, about the violence there. Uh, in the Caucasus, in, in Chechnya. And do you think that rising violence, that thuggery, has persisted? I mean, it, it seemed, there seems to be, from an outsider, a clear line between that kind of attitude, that approach, and the way in which Putin deals with opposition. I mean, do you think that is a continuity? I think it is perhaps part of the uh, perhaps part of the same pattern, but I think in a way, um, Putin's Putin came from a slightly different approach. He built his initial reputation and his initial popularity on being someone who brought an end to the conflict in Chechnya. You know, he was very very clear. Um, in the autumn of 1999, when he was prime minister and was soon, very soon after Yeltsin's surprise resignation on, on New Year 1999-2000, was going to become president. He built it on this image of being tough and, and of sorting things out. Right from the start, his whole public image was built on strength and sobriety. And sobriety was very important. Yeltsin too is remembered for episodes of public drunkenness. And there was horrific alcohol abuse in Russia in the 1990s as people sought to come to terms with uh, the way that things were changing around them. And Putin was very keen to sort of build up this strongman image, you know, the, I can do this, I'm going to sort out the Chechens, I'm going to, you know, bring order. And it was it was interesting, I remember there was a lot of discussion in the 1990s, and early, particularly in the early 2000s, as he began his first term as president, people were, would ask you, you know, is he is he going to be a Democrat? Is he is he going to this going to be Russia going off in a different direction? And it was difficult to judge then. I think a lot of people felt that Putin thought democracy, but not now. You know, he had this idea that he was going to bring order to the country first. And I don't think it was particularly well understood outside the country. A lot of people in the West had just seen that with the end of Soviet power came a degree of freedom which Russians had not previously enjoyed. But I think the chaos was, was ignored. The unpaid wages, the inability to get medical treatment, the difficulty of, in the education system, everything that we think of as you know, important to, to people in their everyday lives. And I think, although I think those of us who were there in the 1990s, you know, personally, you know, I'm very disappointed about the state of relations between Russia and the West and somebody who spent a lot of time there. Um, and don't you know and don't like the way that things are but i think we definitely understood where putin came from in terms of his genuine political popularity now of course it was a very big stretch to say they have free elections in russia now but i think there are um i think it's one of the mysteries really as to why the kremlin particularly in the 2000s manipulated the results they did all sorts of put pressure here and there as they did because putin would have won a fair election you know he would have done and that was an interesting question which i put to kremlin advisors sometimes but they just would say well you know we have to keep a control on things if we had a really free elections in this country our parliament would be you know half full of communists and fascists as one of them once put to me so there's this very strong desire to keep control and security and stability is very very important i mean the west is seeing that with the coronavirus as well that that that, 
that is one of the essentials of government um, uh, in a kind of Hobbesian sense of uh, security and stability being, you know, the, the first role of government in a way. So it's not unique to Russia in that sense. No. We asked you recently, James, um, a question in our head-to-head -head series, could the Soviet Union have survived because you were there at the time when it ceased to survive. But I wonder, to finish on this, your book starts in, with Lenin coming to power. I wonder how much of the Soviet Union still does survive in Russia, the attitudes, the organisation, the infrastructure, whatever, uh, the culture. How much of that does survive today? I think it survives to a very large extent in people's minds. And it's remarkable to see how many people never knew it. Um, and, and it's interesting for me now to, to go back to, to visit Russia as I did, you know, uh, last year, I had a trip early, uh, planned earlier this year, which didn't go ahead as much travel doesn't at the moment. But it was interesting for me to see, um, you know, for amongst the younger generation, this sort of great nostalgia for a world which they never knew. And I think it's, it's, it's a really, really key point because how much of the Soviet Union survives well? Would we have had Russia's war with Georgia in 2008? Would we have had the annexation of Crimea in 2014 and the ongoing conflict there? Would we have the situation in Belarus that we have now if it wasn't for the fact that, or indeed Nagorno-Karabakh, you know, if it wasn't for the fact that the Soviet Union still, that, that Russia is still subject to this pull of history from, from the Soviet period. So it does certainly survive in that sense. Um, I think one of the big differences, probably, there's a great deal more freedom. I mean, I think one of the Soviet Union's great failings was its inability to provide consumer goods. That is not a problem in Russia now. You know, you can go the streets of the streets and shops of Moscow, although the economy has not been having anything like the great time it was having in the oil boom years of the of the of the last decade of the 2000s. But you know, there is a great deal of personal liberty in terms of exercising consumer choices, for example. You can more or less read what you want in a way that you couldn't in the Soviet period, not least because, of course, those things are so very difficult to control. It was remarkable, Paul, to think that um, in the 1917 revolutions, the revolutionaries were able to stop people finding out about what was going on there just by switching off the telegraph. That was that. So they could switch off the telegraph and people couldn't find out what was happening. So that's very different in that sense. But of course, if you think about what the influences are on Russia's idea of itself today, the Second World War, the Great Patriotic War, as it was, looms very large, but also the Soviet Union. And you have a leader in Putin who has publicly referred to the collapse of the Soviet Union as a catastrophe and who arguably his entire political philosophy is formed by his experience of having been on the losing side in the Cold War. So in that sense, mentally, culturally, yes, it's still a very, very strong influence, I would say. Well, thank you, James. Um, James Rogers' book, Assignment Moscow. Reporting on Russia from Lenin to Putin is published by IB Taurus and it's available now and it's fascinating. Well, thank you, James. Thank you very much for that discussion. My pleasure, Paul. It's a real, real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.